are listening to Stories from Palestine podcast, a podcast recorded in Palestine and about Palestine. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands and I am married to a Palestinian. We live in Beit Safafa between Jerusalem and Bethlehem and we run Singer Cafe and Al Chisar Bar in Beit Sahur. Before moving to Palestine in 2013, I worked as a teacher and tour guide in the Netherlands. I have a degree in history and in tour guiding and many years of tour guiding experience. Due to the COVID pandemic, tourism in Palestine came to a complete halt and that's why I started Stories from Palestine podcast in August 2020. This is the second year of the podcast with every week on Monday a new episode about the history and heritage of Palestine as well as the reality of life today. I hope you will enjoy today's episode. Last week, Sunday, I joined a tour in Silwan with the NGO Emek Shaveh, which is an Israeli NGO that works to prevent the politicization of archaeology in the context of the Israeli occupation and the abuse by settlers of archaeology to justify their settlements. It was a very interesting tour. We walked with Jonathan Misrahi. He was one of the founders of Emek Shaveh. He's not working officially with them anymore, but he still does the tours. We were there on a day where the Israeli occupation forces were attacking the Haram al-Sharif, and we were very close from it. So sometimes we heard the helicopters and shooting in the background. I've had to edit the audio file a little bit in order to have less background noise from the other visitors that were in the center and around the archaeological site who were getting a totally different narrative than we were and some of the street noises. So I don't think you will hear it that much during this episode, but you have to understand that while we were in Silwan, there was a lot of things going on around us. I also had to edit the episode a little bit for it not to become too long. And I edited out some of the questions and answers that were not really related to what we were seeing. So I hope you will enjoy this podcast episode. And if you want to know more, you can go to the show notes and click the link to go to the website of Emek Chavez. So. My name is uh, Yoni Mizrahi. I'm going to guide you today. Until recently, I was the executive director of Emek Shaveh. I'm no longer the director of Emek Shaveh. Actually, I have no position in Emek Shaveh anymore. I'm just doing these tools for Emek Shaveh until they will find somebody else to guide instead of me. I don't know what the, what the plan, but I'm the founder of Emek Shaveh and was the director for 12 years. Actually, I think about it, I also founded this tool. So uh, I think I'm a bit familiar with what I should do. Emek Shaveh is an Israeli NGO that focuses in the role of uh, archaeology or maybe the historic narrative in the political conflict. We began our activity, before even it was Emek Shaveh, we began our activity here in Silwan, city of David. And after that, Emek uh, Shaveh was established and we are still very much involved in what's happening in Jerusalem. Also in the West Bank, we're following what's happening in the West Bank, obviously. And also we have uh, one project in, in, in Israel. But, uh, and it's all related to... I think archaeology or cultural heritage sites and how they are presented in the, in the political conflict. In my profession, I'm an archaeologist, but most of my writing, if not all of my writing, is about archaeology and the political conflict or archaeology and the Israeli society, how we treated archaeology in general. In the tour today, we're going to focus 
I mean, I mean, the two has like three parts which are kind of uh, mixed, which is, uh, first of all, the role of archaeology in the political conflict. Uh, City of David as a case study, I think. We're going to talk about archaeology, about the historic narrative, why there are so matter to the political conflict as well. Historic narrative, maybe nationalistic narrative, which are all mixed. And, and then we're going to talk a bit about the neighborhood, the village, about some of the cases that may be pending or that are kind of struggles. At the same time, I must say, there are also many other tools to East Jerusalem which are more focused in the, let's say, political issues uh, of like uh, house demolitions and um, uh, master plans and many other cases, um, child arrest, many other human rights issues, which I think I'm familiar with, but I'm definitely it's not my, uh, my expertise. I mean, and I don't want to take uh, other people's jobs, so they do theirs and I, I'll focus in the uh, in the other parts. That was the long introduction. Okay, so first of all, about where are we? We are in a, what is called East Jerusalem, in a neighborhood called Silwan, and also in the touristic center of City of David. Uh, this is actually an open space, everybody can come here. But City of David is an archaeological site that's located in the middle of Silwan. Many Palestinians' neighborhood or Palestinian uh, villages, uh, cities are obviously built on an archaeological site or next to an archaeological site because they are the ones who actually continued present of, I mean, in the same places. In general, it's a bit different when we're talking about settlement, but also when we are talking about Israeli's uh, cities because they were built in different places. So Silwan is not unique by being a village on an archaeological site. What makes it unique that this is the place where Jerusalem began, and that's what makes it so special. To that, we have to add a few factors that I'm going to talk more about them later. First of all, this is a national park, which means Israel declared the whole area here as a national park. The whole area, it means, the area I'm going to show you later in, in, in the lookout, but let's say that this part of Silwan is part of a national park. To clarify, let's say the old city is not a national park. But the, there's kind of a belt around the old city, which is a national park. So if you're walking around the walls of the old city, you're actually walking in a national park. And here it goes all the way down to the, to the valley. When Silwan is the only neighborhood that was declared as a national park, if you want in Israel, uh, whatever you want to call it, okay, because it was declared after 67, obviously. Usually when you declare national parks, there's hardly any residents in these areas because national parks are supposed to protect other places like nature or, or, or historic monuments, not only nature, okay? And that was a unique case that the Israeli authorities in, in the 70s decided that Silwan would be, at least part of Silwan, would be included in the national park. They knew they're going to face problems with the needs of the residents, let's put it this way. I mean, it's getting complicated because in the 90s they declared also at Nabi Samuel, but, but Nabi Samuel is the West Bank, and this area considered, I'm jumping from one subject to another, but this area considered East Jerusalem, the occupied territories, but according to the Israelis, it's part of Israel. Okay, unlike the West Bank. That's important to, to I'm going to clarify it later. So this is a national park. It's also a residential area that we're going to see later. And it's also unique because this is a national park. All the national parks in Israel operated and managed by the Israeli Nature and Park Authority, which is a governmental body. There are no private uh, bodies who are operating national parks in Israel. But City of David is unique because this site 
operated by a private group which called Elad, which are also the settlers organization that focus in, in, in part of Silwan at least. That's what makes it more complicated and that's what you have to remember for now. In regards to the beginning of Silwan, or the city of David, in general, when we're going to see it later, this is the place where Jerusalem began. The old city is not the place where Jerusalem began, not, not at all. Jerusalem began here, it was established as a small city by a culture which we call them the Canaanites in the 18th, 17th century BC. That's the history, the way it began, and it's continued until today. And the Jebusite, people that we know from the Bible at the Jebusite, we have no other reference to the Jebusite except of the Bible. You can call the Canaanite Jebusite if you prefer. I prefer to call them Canaanite because I know nothing about the Jebusite, but it's definitely the term that's also very popular. We're assuming that the Jebusite were one of the people who lived in the land of Canaan, if you want to call it, in the third millennium, second millennium, something like that, okay? BC, BC of this. So let's go. So now I, I brought you here, so when you see it, you maybe be a bit, you listen better. So I just want to, to make it clear something about the history of this place. For years, people didn't know where Jerusalem began. People know about the, knew about the old city, obviously, but they wanted to find kind of the core of Jerusalem. Eventually, they were looking for the biblical Jerusalem. That was the whole idea. In the 19th century, a British explorer came to Jerusalem. His name is Charles Warren. And he wanted to discover Solomon Temple. So he went to do an excavation under the Temple Mount. It didn't work very well. Riots began, obviously. And then the Ottomans banned him from excavating in the old city. And he came here and began to excavate here. And he found all kinds of structures, ancient structures. One of them is a shaft that today is called Warren Shaft, obviously, which he identified as part of City of David, okay? Part of the biblical Jerusalem back then. And then, after his discovery, many other delegations came. British, French, Germans were here before, the Americans, everybody came to excavate here. Understanding this is the place where Jerusalem began. And according to the archaeological finds, we have here archaeological ruins from, let's say, 17th, 18th century BCE, where the Canaanite established this small city. Okay, it was a very small city. So, um, the Canaanites, it's kind of a code to the people who lived here, and we know very, or I know very little about them, okay? And they established this city, and it was a very small city. Nothing important. Even comparing to the cities back then in the second millennium BC, so it was not one of the biggest cities, obviously. It was a very small city. And we have, after that, archaeological finds from different periods, 12th century BC, something like that, 8th century BC, 7th century BC, we also have here a ruin stuck, ruin layer from the 6th century BC, which is parallel to what we know from the Bible, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylons, and Jerusalem continued. Jerusalem didn't stop after the destruction, never. It always continued. In general, the concept of living in, in cities or in towns developed in the idea that it's long, okay, I'll try to make it short. Cities began in about 3000 BC, something like that. And the idea was actually not to live on the mountains because it's not a very attraction place to live. So this is why the biggest cities were actually on the shore, in the valleys and other places. And Jerusalem, they came a bit late, by the way. Probably because there's a water source down here in the valley. 
so they could establish the, the city. Okay, that's the main reason. It wasn't the first priority to establish the city here. All the cities that you know on the mountains, like uh, Nablus, if you want, and Hebron and other like that, they built a bit later than the cities like Megiddo, Hatzor, whatever. So it was established here. It was a Canaan city. After that, it was Judean city, destroyed, and continued to other layers. We have here Roman layers, Byzantine layers, Muslim layers, obviously. We have everything here until the 20th century. What is also important to remember that the core of Jerusalem moved from here to the old city around the 2nd century BC, 1st century BC. We call it the Hellenistic period. Jerusalem expanded to the north, and it was much easier to build on the north. On the north of Jerusalem, which is the, what is today the Jewish quarter, if, I guess you're familiar. But also, there is the place we haven't talked about yet, which is the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif, which was always an issue. We understand that it was a place of a shrine even before the Judeans, during the Canaanite. And during the years, the upper class moved to live next to the temple, if you want. But also, uh, thanks to the technology, what happened during the Hellenistic, but mainly, this is why I say it's not exactly in the beginning of the Hellenistic period, but during the first, second century BC, the world began to use uh, what we are calling the aqueduct, which is water tunnels, which means that you're not relying only on the water that came from the springs, but you can rely on water that came from afar, from the area of Bethlehem, Hebron, if you want. So it changed the whole, the whole world, actually. If you want, the old city that we know today developed much, much later. The walls are Ottoman walls, has nothing to do before. If you were coming here to the, during the Roman or the Byzantine period or whatsoever, early Islamic period, you could come here as well and you will find uh, people living here, houses, whatever. If everything is fine about this long history, let's go to the lookout. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, are we all here? Something about this lookout, and, and where are we? So behind you, in front of me, you can see Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Great Dome is Al-Aqsa, obviously. And then you have the wall. It's the wall of the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif, but also the wall of the old city, partly. The wall continues to the west, and you have the Jewish Quarter, and the Mount of Zion behind this tree. You can see the, the gray roof over there. So in the top, next to the wall, you can see the Domitian Abbey. And this is Mount of Zion, and this is where the Green Line passed, okay? So the Green Line used to be, not used to be over there, or it's still over there, actually. And Silwan is actually the closest neighborhood to the Green Line. Which means that the houses you see here, it's part of Silwan, and they are actually next to the Green Line. But Silwan is also the closest neighborhood to the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif, which it's their fortune or unfortunate, depends how you look at it. And this is why it became such a strategic location, because for many people, this political conflict, eventually it's about the question, and it's becoming more and more about the question, who controls the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif, like you can know about what's happening uh, recently. So for the settlers to come here and to settle here, it was definitely a strategic decision. And I think until today that the settlement of Silwan is, is a strategic settlement regards to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as well. By the way, I think once I, I thought about the option of two-state solution, so it definitely was part of the political conflict problem, 
Personally, today, I don't think it's realistic, the two-state solution anyway, but even one-state solution, if it will come one day, make the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif a problematic uh, issue anyway. So Silwan continues to the east, and this is definitely part of Silwan. All the houses you see over there in the slope just in front of us. You can see the valley down there. We're going to talk about it later. And you have the Jewish cemetery in front of us where you see all the buses. And this is the Jewish cemetery, which is called Mount of Olives Jewish Cemetery. Next to it, you have the churches, because Mount of Olives is holy to Jews, Muslim, and Christian, like we all know. The eyes, we're having here Silwan, and you can see trees, and you can see houses where painted with eyes. This is actually, when we're talking about Silwan, Silwan is divided to different neighborhoods or different quarters if you want. Here behind me, we're having uh, what the hillway over there, we're having um, what's called uh, Batin al-Hawa. It's another part of Silwan when you have a different settlers organization who focus in the settlement there, which is called the Teret Kohanim. And the eyes is actually something that the Palestinians painted to mark, first of all, their locations, and also the location of the struggle, but also saying you're looking at us and we are looking at you at the same time. So you're having few houses spread over there, which are also under threat of evictions, mainly, where the settler claims ownership. No, not exactly ownership, but uh, all together, you're talking about more than 40,000 Palestinians living in Silwan. Right. And about 1,000 settlers. Okay. Okay? You understand now why, why the location is so strategic, I hope? The settlers are spread in different houses. It's not that there is kind of a quarter where the settlers are living. The biblical Jerusalem, which was a very small city, one border was the valley over here, and another border was more or less where the buses are, where the Dan Gate is, if you know where the Dan Gate is. There used to be another valley, and this is where Jerusalem was established, as we say before, because they had a water source down here in the spring. Biblical Jerusalem is thousands of years, but most of the biblical period until it was in this area, only in the 8th century BC, Jerusalem expanded to the, what is today the Jewish quarter. Let's go down. Are we all here? Okay, are we, if we were all here, fine. We talked about the archaeology and we talked about the, the now, now it's about, I have to show you that what I'm talking about is really exist. So this is the archaeology you see around you. And that's actually the proof that whatever I said is, is true. Uh, not exactly, obviously, because the story of the excavation here, like I said, began like almost 200 years ago, 150 years ago, more, 170 years ago. And we're having here many layers. So when you're doing an archaeological excavation, you do it from the surface all the way down. When you're excavating what we're calling a tail, a site with many layers, you definitely reach different structures from different periods. This is how it works, from the latest to the oldest, if you want. Which is not exactly like that, sometimes it's much more mixed. It's very difficult to identify the layers. This place was excavated a few times, and archaeologists have kind of an agreement about few things, and obviously disagreement about many things. We understand that most of the high walls that you see from here, like for example the wall with the small stones over there, and there are also few walls in the other side, in the corner over there, they're actually part of structures from the Byzantine or even Islamic, early Islamic period. And we also have all kinds of systems, like the system here, and you have system in the other side. Those systems are actually also dated to the Byzantine period or even later. Actually, one of them is dated to the Roman period. But we understand that these systems were made in different periods, which means they actually cut what was in between. Okay, if, for example, David living room was here, King David living room was here, somebody decided a thousand years later 
or more than a thousand years later, to have a system. So we lost King David's living room or whatever you want, or chair, whatever, okay? So that's what makes it more complicated in, in archaeology. The consensus about the biblical Jerusalem, there are a few things. First of all, if you're looking in the other side, you can see a lot of stones, and the sun is kind of shining on, on, on a lot of stones, which make creating kind of a very wide wall or a foundation of a wall. All of this wall that you see over there, they are part of a wall which was dated to the 12th, 11th century BC, the late Canaanite period. What you want, the Jebusite if you want, which I don't like the name, but if you prefer. The late Canaanite period. So this city had probably a wide wall of a fortress or a palace or what, whatever it was, dated to the 11th, 12th century BC. And we understand that we are now standing above the Acropolis of ancient Jerusalem. The upper class of Jerusalem used to live here. The problem was that we're having here layers from before the time of David and Solomon. We're having here layers much after the David and Solomon. We'll see later. And somehow, city of David, the city that we know from the Bible that David conquered, and we know that was the capital of the largest kingdom ever that the ancient Israelite had, if you want, whatever, if you're familiar with the Bible. According to the Bible, David and Solomon had the largest kingdom. This capital was not found. Okay? We don't know exactly where, for example, is King David Palace or Solomon Palace or Solomon Temple, if you want. All the structures that we're expecting to find in this ancient Jerusalem, we don't have any proper information. And then what happened is that archaeologists came here in 2004, one archaeologist mainly, and she excavated again in this area, and she found the big stones. I, I mentioned the small stones, but if you see the big stones here, they're like five big stones, a gap, and then there's another line of big stones going a bit up and creating kind of, and another behind the, the, the line of stone, there's another stone. There's an archaeologist who identified this whole part of structure as a wall from the 10th century BC, the time of David and Solomon. We do know that David and Solomon should be dated to the 10th century BC. And then she come and say, this wall, and this wall as well, which was built before, but was in use also in the 10th century, is actually part of a structure that was a governmental building, and maybe a palace, and then it might be the King David Palace. And she based on a few things. First of all, she's mentioning, like you can see here, that the Bible mentioned that King David built his palace in Jerusalem. And then they're explaining that these archaeologists believing that based on the pottery and thing, other things, that this is King David Palace, or 10th century structure. Since this is the Acropolis, that might be the King David Palace. This is the main narrative that all the visitors hearing when they're coming, although you can see there's a question mark and suggesting that it might be not true, but eventually this is the main narrative that people are hearing and they are coming to City of David. But the academic community in large disagree with this theory. They are dating the whole structures for different periods and in general, although there are a lot of disagreements, I can say that about the 10th century in City of David, we are still facing a problem which actually it's not a problem to most of the people. It's kind of an academic problem who, that nobody really cares. But it became an issue because of political conflict. Because the figure of David in the Israeli identity. Now, David has like different identities. One is the religious figure, if you want, in the Bible, and Jews, Christian, and Muslims obviously see him. Muslims see him as a prophet. Christians see him as the beginning of the dynasty of Jesus, if you want. The Israelis see David as the founder of the Israeli kingdom. 
So he's very important as a religious figure, but he's also important as an Israeli nationalistic figure. He is like the forefather who established Jerusalem, or made Jerusalem the capital of the Israeli people. And if you are coming here as a visitor, you are coming to the place where Jerusalem began, one of the most important places to the Israeli people. And this is something very powerful to Israelis or Jews from diaspora who are coming here, because eventually they come and say, okay, there might be Palestinian, there might be a few problems here, but eventually this is where it all began. And that's something that's important, and this is, according to my understanding, why they always emphasize David. The problem is that it's very difficult to date artifacts from the 10th century, and they're very much mixed with 9th century. What happened is that, let's put it this way, that when you think about pottery from the 9th or 10th century, it's very difficult to identify the differences. And also, it's very difficult to understand exactly which structure belongs to which period, because it's all mixed and you don't have, and I'm not going now to the details how you date, but you have to find a proper structure with floors and what you have under the floors and under the walls and things like that. So it's, it's difficult. They're having this uh, capital over there. Do you see this? This actually was found by a British archaeologist in the 60s, not here, but in the slopes. And this is the copy, not the original actually. The original is in the Rockefeller Museum. But this is a capital, that, that a typical capital for pillars of a public structures from the 8th, 7th century BC. And here it's put it as something that was part of the structure of the 10th century. I don't know if it, if it began back then. Or I guess it didn't, but okay. So they're trying to put all kinds of artifacts mentioning, okay, 10th century, 8th century BC, it's not that matter, but uh, they definitely have a problem. Let's go. Oh, no, that now we're going to pass. Okay, we're going to clear away. Sorry, guys, I tried to... Oh, no. Okay. I think we'll sit here, okay? Okay, so, uh, where were we? Ah, where are we? It's more important. Okay. Something else about the archaeology. So... Uh, like I said, if you remember, we mentioned that the wall in the top, which is from the 11th, 12th century BC, it sits on a structure going like stairs, which is probably the foundation that was built later to support the wall. And later, people built houses on this kind of structure. If you see the two pillars just in front of us, and there's kind of a yard. It's artificial, but it originally was probably there was a yard. And then you can see stairs here. I don't know if you see the stairs, but there are the stairs next to the... There's a wall, there are two pillars, a wall with a path and a stairs. Okay? And the, another side, there's another wall, another wall, another line of stairs just a bit down there, next to the wall over there. We understand that this all lines of walls, stairs, walls, stairs, pillars, whatever you want to call it, it's actually a line of houses from the 8th, 7th century BC, the time that Judea was here. So Judea, we know that Judea of Jerusalem back then, of the, of the, of the Judea of the, of the Bible, by the way, was here, as I mentioned before, as a small city. So again, we have the Canaanite period, we have the question of the 10th century, but we don't have a question of the 8th, even not 9th, 8th, 7th century. For sure we don't have the question, and we don't have a question of the destruction of the 6th century. Some question exists, some question are less exist. After that, like, like, like I said, Jerusalem obviously continued, but what is interesting, although we know that Jerusalem was here in the Judean period in general, usually they are mentioning, like I said, city of David. Now also something else which is very interesting, because this is the only archaeological or national park that has a name 
of historic figures. If you are, I'm talking about Israel now. I mean, all the national parks in Israel, Caesarea, Tsipori, Dan, whatever, it actually had names of places following the name of the village or the settlement next to it. Here, the only place that is called City of David, which also uh, unique by itself. So we're having this archaeology here. We're having these Judean people. By the way, you ask me who are the Canaanites. You didn't ask me who the Judeans are, so I'm assuming they all know who the Judeans are. So I'm going to ignore this issue. But I will say one sentence. We don't know who are the Judeans are. Okay? Okay. But it's definitely the people who lived here. Back then, I just want to say more than that, obviously. We don't know exactly who are the Judeans, which means we don't know exactly who are the people who lived in Jerusalem. During, I mean, like, if it's a mix of Canaanite people with people who lived around here and they lived here together, if it's like a different ethnic group, what exactly kind of ethnic group. The whole history we know back then is from the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians' inscriptions. We don't have another inscriptions, okay? Now, 100% we cannot say many things. Sure. Uh, 100% is not something that the archaeologists will say, even if you think 100% is what we want to say. Like, like I said, we have a problem. We don't know exactly what was Jerusalem back then. Right. Was it just a small village? What kind of a kingdom David had? Like, was it... Um, he was a leader of a local tribe. Was he a leader of a small kingdom? Right. It's what exactly? We, we do understand that David was exist. He did. Yes. That kind of a proof. I mean, uh, there's inscription from the 9th century mentioning the house of David that was found in Dan. In Tel Dan, north, ne next to the border of... With, uh, not here, though. Not here. Not here. Right. But, the, but it was mentioned. The, the stella that was made by uh, the Aramites, the, the people who lived in, in Syria back then. And he's mentioning the house of David. So we know, we understand that David it was the name of a dynasty of Judea. Listen, there's no conclusive evidence for many things. Right. How many things are, have no conclusive evidence? No, there's nothing. There's almost, no, almost nothing, except what we, this is why I like, this is why I like so much stones. You know, for sure it exists. And pottery, you know, it exists. But there are not many questions we don't know. So enough archaeology for now. And let's go to talk about the development of the settlement and, and, and the archaeological site itself. So let's, let's walk. You can sit also over there if you want, or to stand, or to sit on the stairs, or to sit here. We have an archaeological site, like we said, a small but uh, interesting archaeological site. And uh, we also have, like, uh, obviously, uh, the, the story of, of the settlers, which I mentioned. Silwan was a Palestinian neighborhood or a village. First of all, it was a village. It was not even part of Jerusalem. Only later it became part of Jerusalem, obviously. And then I'm jumping uh, to the 20th century. I'm going back later to the 19th century and the Yemenite Jews, but now we're jumping to the 20th century. In the 80s, the settlers began the whole process of settling in Palestinian neighborhood in East Jerusalem. It began before in the 70s, but not, not really. I mean, actually it began mainly on the 90s, but they began to develop their plans uh, in the 80s. And Elad was established in the 80s. And in 1991, when Ariel Sharon was the housing minister, Elad entered few houses in Silwan. They got six houses. One of them is this house, which is called Abbasi House belong to a Abbasi family. It's a very common name, Abbasi, here, but uh, this family here, Abbasi. And they got these houses because of a law which called the Absentee's Property Law. 
Now, most of you know the absenteeism properties law, but maybe I will say something about it anyway, just to make all in the same page. So, the absenteeism properties law is a law that uh, was made in 1950 or 51 in Israel. What happened is that after the war of 1948, a lot of property, a lot of land remained uh, with no owners, or the owners were living in all kinds of uh, enemy states around Israel. And Israel come and say, first of all, they are not allowed to come back, of course, because the terminology Israel used is that they ran away, they were not evacuated, that's the terminology that uh, the Israel is using until today. And we have to do something with this property. So they say that if you own the property, but you live in enemy state, after a few years, the property belongs to the government. To the, and then there's a body, the, the general custodian, that responsible to this property. So a lot of property in Israel is actually based on this law. All over Israel, you have a lot of property that was given to the kibbutzim, to the moshavim, to the cities, and all of that. So that was between 48 to 67. And then after the war of 67, Israel faced few problems. First of all, people who lived in Sheikh Jarrah, for example, suddenly they are in, inside Israel because Israel occupied the West Bank, but also annexed, I forgot to mention, East Jerusalem. So what do you do with this law? And then the court, or there was kind of deci legal decision, I don't remember how it came, that says that Israel allowed also to use the absentee properties law. Uh, there was actually debate about it, if Israel allowed to use the absentee property laws in property in, in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, okay? And then they decided they allowed, and in the early 90s, this law was used for the houses that the settlers took. They took part of the house, the settlers just took it one night. So what happened is that people lived in these houses. First of all, people who claim, and you see later on that, prove that they own the house, but they were not empty houses, okay? The houses were inhibited by people who rented them from the owners or whatsoever, okay? So the settlers went in to this first house in 1991. By the way, Abbasi family, they struggled against it and went to court a few times, and they actually won a few times. But the legal struggle is very difficult because you fight for so many years, you have to invest a lot of money, and it's always like a new case, a new case, a new case, and eventually one of the people in the family sold part of the house, and today I think you have one or two Palestinian families living here, and 12 or 10 Israeli families. It's a huge house, it's not just what you think you see. They gave all the houses names, yes, yes, all the names, and then what happened, all the settlers' houses have names like Tira House, which is a castle, Names in Hebrew, which uh, has a meaning, which I don't know what the meaning always, but uh, it has all kinds of meanings. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the 90s. In the late 90s, the settlers realized they're facing a problem. Taking over houses based on the absentee properties law gives them very limited property regards to the size of the city or the neighborhood. And then they decided to be involved with archaeological excavations and with the operation of the site. Make the long story short, in 2002, they got permission to operate the archaeological site. It was the time of the Second Intifada, no tourists, and then they got permission to operate the archaeological site. And since then, they got a lot of property under the responsibility, but also responsibility for the narrative, which is also very important, which means that today you have, like, between... Today, no, but in, before the COVID years, you, you had, like, almost half a million people visiting this city, or half a million people visiting the city of David from different political opinions, doesn't really matter. 
And the historic narrative is very, very powerful here for the, all the Israelis, not just for the settlers, even beyond this, the Israelis. And that was the idea. We are living here, but they're having the archaeological side, which shows the connection between, oh, the justification, if you want, why we are living here. Because our ancestors are living here. And this is the decision that El-Ad did to use this archaeology. Not all the settlers doing it the same way. Not at all. Ateret Kohanim used different methods. But it's definitely something that became very popular also in the West Bank in the last few years, in the last dozens of years. So we walked in this street, and obviously I was asked about the character of the street. So actually, this is a Palestinian street. You could see all kinds of houses with the symbol of the harp and names like Tamar House over here and things like that. Settlers' houses, obviously. But most of the people who live here are actually Palestinians. You don't feel like it and you don't see it, but actually it's a Palestinian street that was designed kind of like you feel that you are maybe in the Jewish quarter or something like that, but it's definitely... You have few settlers' houses, like the house here, this house here, but also many Palestinian houses. And if you look into this direction, so we mentioned uh, the houses with the eyes before, but you can see them here closer, uh, over there. There are how, one house, another house over there. You can see they're spreading all over. And we are talking about houses belong to the settlers and houses, obviously most of the houses are actually Palestinians. And the struggle over there is a the struggle of another settlers' organization called Ateret Kohanim, which actually claiming the houses that used to be inhabited by Yemenite Jews, let's put it this way. This is one thing I want to mention. Also look at the valley. You, you can see the football yard over there and houses around it. This is what is called El Bustan. But I want to mention a few things. The Yemenite Jews. The Yemenite Jews is a very interesting story. The Yemenite Jews came to, to Jerusalem, if you want to call it, uh, in the 19th century. Now, the Yemenite Jews, they have a different kind of a prayer, by the way. They don't pray exactly like the Sephardic Jews. Definitely different kind of clothes, different language and they look different. So they were not very welcome among the Sephardic Jews that was the most dominant Jewish community in, in Jerusalem back then. Are you all familiar with that? The Sephardic Jews were the dominant, Ashkenazi were a very small uh, community. So they were not very welcome in the beginning. They didn't have anywhere to live. After a few years, the Sephardic community realized they have to find them a shelter and a place. For years, they actually lived just in caves, in Sheikh Jarrah, here, in all kinds of caves. And then few families decided to build houses for the Yemenite Jews in Silwan and put them living here. And they lived here since the 19th century. They didn't want to live here, the Yemenite Jews, because they say, you put us living with Arabs, because they lived in a Silwan neighborhood. But the Jewish community didn't want them, so they lived here. And it was a very peaceful uh, neighborhood because um, the Silwanese and the Yemenites were very poor. And one of the, uh, I know that many of you working in the NGO looking for peace solutions. The best peace solution is actually to have poor people living together. They're usually living together very, very well. That's my, my conclusion always when I see that. So the Yemenite poor people and the Palestinian poor people lived here peacefully together. Uh, it was very popular, mixed marriages, but nobody talks about it. So it's taboo. Thing that you don't talk about. So they came here, they lived here. There were the, the clashes of 1929. The Yemenite Jews were saved, actually, by the Palestinian people. 
especially by one family which called Roslan family. And the Roslan family used to live in this house until the early 90s or late 80s. And then they were evacuated from this house by the settlers and moved here. And then they later in 2005, they moved from this house. The Yemenite Jews later wrote a thanks letter to the Palestinians, especially to the Roslan family that helped them, saved them. Very powerful letter. And the Yemenite Jews mentioning the saving, but also saying we actually lived like brothers. So actually, we're not just mentioning that you saved us, but also thanking you for the neighborhood. After that, the Yemenite Jews didn't come back. Until the 21st century, begin a bit later, when the settlers came and claiming ownership on the houses where the Yemenite Jews lived before. That's the story. And now the, the settlers are not Yemenite, but since you remember I mentioned the owner of the houses were not the Yemenite families. The owners were kind of um, Sephardic groups, like a trust. Exactly, it was a trust. Exactly, trust funds that the settlers took over. That's the whole story. And that's how they play. That's the story about this. Now I'm going to the story of the demolitions, which is much more dangerous. You're having here down in the valley houses, which is part of the Bustan neighborhood. The plan of the Jerusalem municipality is actually to build here, to create here kind of an orchard. Because according to the Bible, there used to be a king's orchard, or maybe King David or other king's orchard. We don't know exactly where this orchard was. We don't know exactly how it looked like. But the plan is to demolish the houses and to have a kind of an orchard or to expand the touristic uh, neighborhood. The people here is still under threat. Uh, we're talking about dozens of houses or even more. A few houses were demolished during the years, like where you think the, the football yard and other places were demolished during the years. And they're definitely facing a threat. And maybe, oh, you know what, Angela, do you want to say something? During Ramadan, there is an amnesty, and so homes are not being demolished. But immediately after Ramadan, the people in the Bustan are very worried that there is no longer any legal recourse, and therefore 1,550 people down there are threatened with homelessness. And no, the authorities are not offering alternatives at the moment. They're rejecting them. After many years of negotiating on various town plans, the mayor or the different mayors have dismissed them out of hand, and we would say with no good reason, just using our people's time, money, patience, and, and running them around. So there's a lot of very bad feeling at what people are suffering. And also I just want to say, because I was mentioned, asked before about demolition. So here in, in Wadi Hilway, you hardly have any demolitions. I don't remember um, any single demolition in the last few years, definitely. It's mainly taking over houses or uh, getting houses based on the absentee properties laws or having archaeological sites like this. In Baten Hawa, it's mainly taking over houses based on the um, trust that we mentioned before. In El Bustan, it mainly talks about demolitions. The plan is actually demolition and to have here an orchard or whatever. So this area here, it's a very interesting area. In the early 20th century, a very well-known Jewish family called Rothschild family, which supported a lot of the beginning of the Zionism, they supported a lot of land and settlement and so on. Admond Rothschild, the French branch, came here and he bought this land for excavation and he brought here a French archaeologist to excavate. His name is Raymond Weil, if you heard about him. And he planned actually to excavate here to find the core of City of David. And 
the tombs of David's dynasty. What happened to him that he found this uh, stone quarry that was made later. So actually the stone quarry destroyed everything that was before. We assume it's Roman or something like that. So we don't have here much, but it's part of the touristic uh, path today. In the past, Palestinians could enter. Today, only tourists. Officially, everybody can enter, but eventually it's closed and you have the, the enter there that is closed with a, with a gate and a guard and so on. Most of the houses you see here actually were built after the last earthquake that was in 1927. It destroyed some of the houses, not all of the houses. Not all the houses. Not at all. Many, many old houses remained here, after the, even bef- because of the earthquake. The original building was very strong. Al-Aqsa was demolished because it's built on pillars and arches and things like that. Al-Atur today prefers to avoid this place, but if they are coming here, they're mentioning that it might be, might be here, King David's dynasty tombs. Not David tomb, not David, but his dynasty tomb. David tomb, according to the tradition, is in Mount of Zion. Let's walk. Are we all here? Yes. Um, we are still in Sil one. We were in Sil one all the time. And I think here you more feel in a Palestinian neighborhood than before. But it's the same place. It's the same place. It's just that there, the whole, uh, you know, the architecture was made, uh, or the design of the architecture was made to feel that you are not in Silwan, but you are actually in Silwan. Here, this is one of the main streets of uh, Wadi Hillway, obviously, that goes from Al-Bustan or Shiloh Pool, if you want, all the way up to Al-Aqsa. That's the main reason why, why it's so important. And for years, also Palestinians used to come from here to the Haram Sharif. The interesting story about this place is that we're having here a, a Palestinian neighborhood. We're having settlers which you can identify them with the Israeli flag, like this house over here. There's a flag over there, but it doesn't mean the whole building belongs to the settlers. Sometimes only part of the building belongs to them. The same over there, but they obviously put in flags. And, and for the settlers, it's very important, the archaeological side, because when they're talking to the average Israelis, the idea of living in a Palestinian neighborhood, lack of facility, is something that is not very popular. But when they are coming and saying, we're living with the archaeology, with the history, it looks different than living here in a very hostile, eventually, in a surrounding. Next to that, there are a lot of excavations going on. First of all, there is an excavation here. But a very important excavation for our story today is the excavation which goes under the street here and under the houses. There's an excavation that goes from the valley down there, most of, more, more or less, under the street and then under the houses here. It actually meets here, it goes like this, under some of the houses there, even under the settler's house, by the way, it goes all the way here. And then it goes under the houses here, all the way up to the first excavation that we haven't visited. If you remember the visitor center, so in the other side of the road, there's a fence, decorated fence. Inside there, there's an excavation. And at the edge of this excavation, there's a tunnel. So there's an excavation of a tunnel that goes from there all the way here and continues under the wall of the old city to the Western World Plaza. What is the idea? It has few ideas. My interpretation to the ideas, their interpretation to the ideas, and our shared interpretations. The idea of the tunnel is actually, first of all, I want to say when you do an archaeological excavation, you don't uh, excavate horizontally. You excavate from the surface all the way down. 
So from a professional point of view, it's a very problematic excavation. So the idea is more touristic, let's put it this way, than an academic. Um, so this tunnel, underground tunnel, it actually goes, like I said, under that. First of all, for touristic purposes, they're saying it's an attraction. Second, this excavation revealing a street from the early Roman period, first century. And this road is mentioned as the Pilgrim's Road, the road where Jewish pilgrims walked from the valley to the temple during the Second Temple period, which is a kind of a narrative that's very common among the Israeli Jewish people and Christian people. It was built in the first century. It was probably was built by a Pontius Pilatus, the governor that actually ordered the, to kill Jews. You want to crucify Jews? So it was built in that time. Anyway, why I'm mentioning that? Because the narrative today that is told to people is definitely the narrative of you're walking from there all the way to the temple and definitely supporting the narrative that the temple is ours and look what's happening today that we can walk all the way to the temple but we don't have an access or a right to pray there because the Israeli government prevented it from us. That's the narrative that they're saying, okay? Also, it helps them to avoid seeing the village or the neighborhood. By walking in the archaeological trail, you actually don't see the present life. You don't see the Palestinian, you don't see the situation here. If there's a riot of tension, you don't feel the tension. And it definitely helps them to say, the narrative is very much Israeli-Jewish narrative. The archaeology is ours. You don't see the village. You go out in archaeological places. You're talking about an excavation that takes place like three, four meters down. And it was about the size of a less than two meters, like a person could walk there. Now, it's all a Roman street, and the Roman were... Um, Good builders, and they built kind of a proper system and a street. It was a well built. But also, the narrative is important here. The narrative of the Second Temple is very important to justify the whole concept of the Second Temple. Like, we have to come back to our temple. I think that from the religious, let's say the religious Zionist groups, not secular, yeah. but they are very popular, this religious group. For them, Zionism goes with building the temple or worshipping in the temple or something. Now, they are a very small group, but very powerful group. And they are getting bigger and bigger all the time. A lot of people are accepting them. Even you can see today ultra-Orthodox supporting them, although it's very limited. No, the street is a, is a, is a Roman street that was built by Pontius Pilatus. That was, for us, we know he was a figure. Okay, so that's... He was not a myth. Some people ask me about King David. Pontius Pilatus, you know, he was exist. Okay? I'm not sure this was the pilgrim's road, by the way. It doesn't make sense to me, but I, I minority because I don't think pilgrims went all the way to Jerusalem and then went all the way down to the valley and then up. There are better access to Jerusalem temple than going down this way. Okay. We reached so far, so uh, I, I, I strongly believe that most of us will uh, finish the tour uh, fine and uh, well. and uh, Yeah. Which is uh, already an achievement. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we are still in Silwan. Obviously, nothing changed. You're having here the quote uh, from uh, Mahmoud Arwish in Arabic and in English that was made by the people of Silwan Center. Silwan Center here, or uh, Wadi Hilwe Information Center, it's called. It was established in 2007 by the Palestinians of uh, Wadi Hilwe. Immediately after it was built, they got a demolition order. They have a demolition order for this small room. But since many things the settlers build are also illegal, so if you demolish here, you have demolish there, so 
But you have this information center, and I want to mention it. I mean, it's also a center with all kind of activities to the community here. But they also have this information center that provides information about what's happening in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem. They have a website which is called Silwanik.net. Definitely the settlers don't like the, the idea that it exists here. So they're facing a lot of problems, but they're still, still here. And from here, we're going to the last stop, which was more or less our first stop. Something we haven't seen today, which is what exists behind this wall. And we talked a lot about the archaeology of the what's called biblical periods, but a lot of archaeology from the Roman Byzantine period exists just behind us here. So when we're talking about this place, remember that, and also from the early Islamic period, something we haven't talked about at all, which is very interesting, is actually what happened. I mean, I want to say that usually we think about periods. Okay, the Romans period ends and then the Byzantine period began. But it was not kind of a cut and, and continues or cut and, and, and something else. And also, uh, what is very important to remember, according to the excavation, according to what we know, we have the archaeological evidence that shows that in the early Islamic period, definitely this area and the area of the old city continued and was rebuilt by the Umayyad dynasty, that the center was in Syria. Later, obviously, when the Abbasid dynasty from uh, Iraq of today, so they are a bit abandoned this area, but uh, a lot of building continue here to the 8th century. I think this is it, more or less, the tour that I want to tell you. From here, I'm leaving you. You have to be on your own, uh, wherever you walk. Silwan this way, the old city this way, Mount of Olives over this way. Okay? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Stories from Palestine. If you enjoy the podcast, then here are several things you can do to support the show. Tell your friends about the podcast. Share some of the social media posts on Instagram or Facebook. Start following the YouTube channel. You can also hear the podcast audio there. And soon I will start uploading videos. Sign up for the email list so that you get a reminder with a clickable link to the new podcast episode and in the future you will be updated about programs and trips that I will start to organize. And of course you can donate to help me pay for hosting the podcast and the website and all the related recording costs. It's the only source of income I have at the moment so you can imagine how much I appreciate every cup of coffee or falafel sandwich that you buy me on the Kofi platform. All the links that you need can be found in the show notes and on the website storiesfrompalestine.info. That's it. I hope you will tune in again next week. <laughs>